Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, my name is Ivana Andrade, and I'm a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Hoffman, a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. He is also the co-director of the Environmental Governance Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs. Professor Hoffman's work revolves around global governance, climate change politics, complexity theory, and international relations theory. He's the author of multiple books, which include Climate Governance at the Crossroads, Experimenting with a Global Response After Kyoto. His current research focuses on political pathways to decarbonization, which we'll be discussing today. We'll also be talking about recent events in the climate change negotiation world and how expectations that surround these negotiations shape their impact. Thank you, Matt, for being here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to, happy to be here. So first, just a, a basic question to introduce some of the, the foundations of your work. What, what is decarbonization? What do you mean by that? Decarbonization is the broad move away from the use of fossil fuels. I mean, one of the things that characterizes the problem of climate change is that our energy systems, our transportation systems, our, really our entire economic systems across the world are locked into the use of fossil fuels. And so carbonization, the use of fossil fuels, the pervasive use of fossil fuels, is really the root cause of climate change. And so decarbonization is the idea that to really move towards a solution to climate change, we ha or to at least manage climate change, we need to decarbonize. We need to move away from the pervasive use of fossil fuels in multiple areas of society and economies and energy and transportation. So could you walk us through a little bit um, of some of the short and long-term stimuli for, for decarbonization? Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot. And one of the things that's interesting about decarbonization is we really don't know how to do it yet. We are learning as we go. There isn't a, an analog historically for this kind of huge transformation, except with maybe the possible exception of carbonizing. Right? We're in the midst of as big a change as when we moved from non-fossil fuels to fossil fuels in the 19th and tw early 20th century. Now, in terms of the short and long-term stimuli for moving towards decarbonization, that's what we're trying to figure out. Prices are a big one, so the big push on carbon pricing. There's also large-scale technological change that has to take place. But one of the things that I work on is trying to understand what are the catalysts that get us to these sort of larger technologies and these larger transformations. And here I think that the real key is that we have to have a change in the common sense around climate change and around society. We have to become, it has to become inevitable that we're going to move away from fossil fuels. And that happens for a number of different reasons. It happens because local communities start to see advantages to having non-fossil fuel technologies in transportation and in energy systems. And what you really need to do is start to build coalitions and build capacity to do things differently, to implement different kinds of technologies, to implement renewable energies, to implement different ways of organizing societies and transportation systems. 
And so there's not a really great answer to your question about long-term stimuli because decarbonization is a process. Decarbonization is going to, we're going to learn to do it as we go. And everything that we try to do, so if we try and put a carbon price on or if we try and regulate coal plants like they're doing in, here in the United States, if we try to put wide-scale electric vehicles on the road in cities and states and provinces, all of those will change the direction that we go in. It will start to open up opportunities and close off other opportunities. And so the process of decarbonization is going to be a complex and long-term one. But there's, the good news is there's lots of little things we can start to do, like encouraging electric vehicles, encouraging carbon prices at different levels and in different places, and starting to adopt technologies in cities and states and policies and countries that can start the process. So at this point, who do you think, what entity has, plays the bigger role in kicking off some of this, kicking this process off or enabling this process? Well, that really depends on where you are. In Europe, where the question is not whether we're going to act on climate change or whether we're going to decarbonize, but how, there you have a really big role being played by national states and the EU itself that can really coordinate and push this from the top. Um, here in North America, in the United States and Canada, federal states, the national level has been less uh, hospitable to moving on climate change and, and on decarbonization. So there you see subnational entities like cities and states taking a lead. And so I think that what, we, what we're finding in trying to understand decarbonization policy pathway or politics of decarbonization is that you can get catalytic action at multiple levels. And so cities across the world are taking some really interesting actions on building retrofits, on electric vehicles, on city planning, on energy grids that can really catalyze a lot of other kinds of action. States are doing interesting things. California, the states in the Northeast here, uh, provinces in Canada with a tax in, in BC. And, but you can see that that moves up through the international level, when, especially when you move over into Europe and where you get nation states that are really moving quickly. And now even in the United States with uh, uh, the Obama plan to regulate coal-fired power plants, you're starting to see national-level action. And so probably sounds like I'm not answering your question, but it's, it's more that we're going to need and we're starting to see action at multiple levels. And I think that it's really the multi-level nature of decarbonization politics that it's, it's key, is the key characteristic. So speaking of cities, you brought up some of the innovative things that cities are doing. There's been some scholarship coming out now that, that suggests that one, a, a more effective way of approaching climate change is by enabling smaller scale actors, cities and municipalities and even towns. Um, in light of that, what do you think is the role moving forward of international multilateral climate negotiations? I think the role for multilateral, co or multilateral cooperation negotiations and treaties has to be fundamentally shifted. Right? For the last 20 years, we have essentially treated the multilateral negotiations as the source of a solution to climate change. We are going to come up with the rules at the global level for sort of centrally attacking this problem and then it'll filter down. And it's a very centralized approach. It's how we deal with transnational problems uh, often that states can't deal with on their own. We develop international cooperation and treaties to, to lay out the solution. 
And I think that needs to be fundamentally shifted because climate change is a problem that can't really be dealt with through a centralized solution. And so I think that the role for the multilateral process needs to be much more about aspiration setting. It needs to set out goals. It needs to really be a place where states can lay out what they're going to do and a place where they can facilitate action at other levels, where they can exchange best practices, where they can work out the transnational implications of taking action at the national level. How do you integrate grids? How do you integrate carbon markets? You can do a lot of very specific negotiations that will uh, around issues that will arise that cross borders and keep a relatively high global level of aspiration. But I think it's a mistake to think that the multilateral process will lay out the solution to climate change. Instead, it needs to facilitate cooperation on specific issues and keep global levels of aspiration high. So building on that, on, on your response there, I, I was just curious, on a more fundamental level, what is it that participants and observers demand and expect out of these negotiations? And is that, how does that comport with reality? Oh, see, that there's a real diversity. I mean, some, you will find they're going to come up with a with a treaty in or an agreement in Paris. We always come up with an agreement every year, um, and there are there's a segment of uh, observers and participants that still want to have a sort of Kyoto-like binding, legally binding agreement where states agree to reduce X amount of emissions in in a certain amount of time. I think, though, that there's a number of other participants who really see, and observers, who really see these negotiations as an important step of the process of continuing to alter the common sense around climate change, continuing to build the consensus that we are going to act on decarbonization. And that's not just the negotiators and the states that are there to negotiate agreements. One of the best parts about the international negotiations and the, the yearly climate summits is that it's a gathering point or a focal point for all kinds of organizations and groups that are working on different aspects of climate change, from adaptation to different areas of mitigation, to trade-related aspects, to development-related aspects, to justice-related aspects. And this, these negotiations are a wonderful focal point for the entire world community that's working on climate change to come together and really work out specific issues and to communicate the kind of activities that they are working on and find partnerships and network and to really start to or to continue to alter the dialogue around what a response to climate change is. And so while I'm not optimistic that we will get a legally binding treaty that somehow solves climate change, these multilateral processes are really important to keep the international community, talking about states, discussing what they can and what needs to be done, but also to have a focal point for civil society and for business to really come together to commit to working on different aspects of the climate change problem. So from your perspective as a political scientist, what ways do you think that the, the climate change communication efforts or movement has in some ways missed the mark in shaping negotiations? 
In a number of ways. I mean, in, in the, there's limits to the ability of the client of communication to alter the fundamental problem, political problems on the ground in terms of getting to a solution at the international level, right? So there's some funda- it's a fundamentally difficult problem to come to a global agreement on a problem like climate change where the costs of acting are very clear and very concentrated and the benefits of acting are diffuse and in the future, right? And that's not to say uh, most likely in all the science that we're hearing says the benefits of acting will outweigh the costs of acting, right? But those benefits are diffuse and in the future and the costs are clear and current, right? And so, and there are some very real political interests that do not want to see progress. And so there's a, there's a fundamental political problem that's difficult to overcome in a forum like multilateral negotiations. Now, that said, I think that the problem of climate change can be framed differently. And I think that framing climate change as an emissions problem has been a real big part of the issue. Because immediately when you frame climate change as an emissions issue, you're in the realm of trying to negotiate the distribution of costs. I think that if we frame climate change as a way towards a better society at multiple levels, we start to see ways to increase discussions around benefits. In fact, I think the city of Copenhagen and the the state of Denmark have, have this right in many ways. They're essentially framing their very ambitious actions on climate change as a way to the good life that a sustainable life is the good life. It's good for business, it's good for people. And that it's not about reducing emissions and putting costs on people, it's about changing the way we organize our economy to be more sustainable. And we organize our lives to be more sustainable. And I think concentrating on the positive benefits, even more so than the urgency around the potential for climate catastrophe, but to concentrate on a positive end goal, a better society, um, a more sustainable society, is a, is a better way to frame these issues. Now, that doesn't necessarily translate into negotiating success, but it certainly is a way to advocate for action at multiple levels. And this is, cities are really leading the way on this, is that uh, uh, cities are selling the idea that acting on climate change is good for the people that live in cities. Mm-hmm. So in, in a 2013 workshop report creating, titled Creating Pathways to Decarbonization, you and others cite the need for greater comfort with ambiguity um, and experimentation, a willingness to experiment. And I'm curious, what do you think are some of the main obstacles uh, for opening up governance structures uh, for, to allow for more experimentation? There's a number of them, and this is... Uh, this is one of the key questions that we have in this research project. I mean, experimentation is not looked kindly upon in all jurisdictions, precisely because you're using resource, tax resource, especially amongst governmental entities, you're using tax resources. And you'd like to have a good sense that you're using those correctly, right? And you don't want to waste people's money, right? And so that's a, it's a huge obstacle to overcome to say that it's really tough to sell a policy by saying, we don't know if this is going to work, right? Now, 
and that's why the key to experimentation is to make sure that anytime you're doing a policy, it's not you're at least designing it and making sure that you're not discussing it as just a climate change policy. Right? So there's a lot of things that we don't necessarily know are going to work in terms of moving directly or the most efficient way towards decarbonization, but is going to be really good for health care outcomes or is going to be really good for enhancing transportation or enhancing people, workers' productivities. Right? And so there's numerous things that we can do that have what we call co-benefits, that where the, the climate outcome, especially given the climate time frame on climate outcomes are, are decades long, are going to be uncertain. And we're going to experiment on how to develop ways to move away from fossil fuel lock-in. But that the benefits along other dimensions, healthcare, livability of cities and, and countries, transportation, energy security, those kind of benefits can be felt relatively quickly and are relatively clear. And so I think that that's one way to be able to move, open up governance structures to move more experimentally is to make sure to have to integrate or mainstream climate change into other activities and so that you know, you're always you're trying something and you're hoping that it has a climate benefit, but it's going to help people otherwise. How have you seen this played out in, in your spheres in, mm. up in Toronto? Well, in Toronto, Toronto has had an interesting political history when it comes to climate change. It was one of the a leading city on climate change um, at the municipal level. And then perhaps some of you have heard we had a rather interesting mayor for the last four years who decided to move away from climate activity. And now we've got a new mayor and we're not sure where it's going. But prior to the last mayor, the, when Toronto was very interested in being a leader on climate change, you see things like f focusing on what the city can do to help people. And so one of the big aspects of the climate change programs uh, within the city of Toronto was building retrofits to try and really enhance and redevelop a lot of the public housing to be both better for the people that use public housing, but to also be energy efficient and to be very much be very climate friendly, right? And so you see using these co-benefits, like huge proportion of climate or carbon emissions comes from buildings, how we heat buildings, how we electrify buildings, how we power buildings. And so building retrofits, seriously enhancing the energy efficiency of our buildings is a huge way to approach the problem of climate change and decarbonization. But it's also one of those areas that has great upsides that have nothing to do with climate change. Making buildings more livable, making them cheaper, making them more sustainable is good for a whole host of reasons. So for a while, European policies have been much more aggressive and forward-looking in addressing climate change. Do you think the recent China-U.S. agreement is any indication that American policy is in any way moving in that direction? Well, I think that portions of the American political establishment are moving in that direction, and I think that that is going to be a, a crucial debate in the next two, four, eight years. Um, I think that now, if the if Obama's power plant plan survives all of the legal and political challenges that it is sure to face, 
the U.S. will be, again, a leader on environment and climate change and will be on par with anything that Europe is doing, um, especially given the level of political opposition that the European states just don't have. And so I think that there's a great potential for the U.S. to be an absolute leader on climate change at the international level. And having a condominium or, or a cooperation with China in this area is, is a great boon to overcoming some of the political opposition to acting on climate change. Much of the U.S. stated opposition to acting internationally on climate change was always tied back to China's unwillingness to act. And now China has shown a willingness to act, and, willing, and I don't think people quite understand the level of, of ambition that peaking China's carbon emissions by 2030 actually entails, right? It's actually, it, it doesn't sound great, but it's actually, if they're able to peak their carbon emissions by 2030, and if they're able to achieve the level of renewable energy that they've laid out, it will be a huge transformation in the Chinese economy, and that will be a, a real boon to, to moving on climate change. And so I think that the U.S. is positioning itself, at least the, the executive branch, is positioning the United States to be a real leader on climate change. Whether that leadership position is uh, able to survive the kind of political challenges that are likely in the next two, four years is, uh, is the big question. So... Turning now to the negotiations happening in Paris, um, what do you hope for, and what do you think is most likely? <laughs> ah, um, well, my hopes and my most likely, I, I try not to make them too separate. Uh, I think what is most likely is we'll come up with an agreement that looks quite a bit like the Copenhagen Accord uh, from 2009, where countries present what they are, the extent of what they are willing to do, and the negotiations or the agreement that has come up with, I'm sure we'll come up with an agreement. They always come up with an agreement. Uh, the, but the agreement that they come up with will essentially ratify and give some legitimacy to the national level commitments. And the, in the, where my hopes and my expectations diverge a little bit is I hope that they're able to do that in a way that makes those pledges and commitments that are made at the national level monitorable, able to be monitored, um, verifiable, and accountable in some ways. And I think that the real negotiations are going to be around how do we make those pledges valid, and are there mechanisms that you can put into place that make those pledges real? Um, I'm less sanguine that they'll come up with um, legally binding or even very strong measures to, to do that. But that said, I think that the process of making national commitments is actually the most important thing. Because once, especially if people start to try and implement those national commitments. I think that uh, the fact that the U.S. is moving towards making its 2020 goals unleashes all kinds of innovation, unleashes all kinds of resources moving in particular directions that makes taking the next steps easier, right? And so it's pursuing the national goals rather than making those national goals accountable that I think is the most important process. 
Because once you start to act on climate change, you start to then find political coalitions that want to see more action on climate change because there will be winners from acting on climate change. You start to build the capacity to act further on climate change. And you start to change the norms within societies about what, uh, what the country should be doing and what an economy should look like and what sustainability is. And so acting has a lot of ripple effects that are more important, I think, than coming up with significant rules for monitoring commitments at the global level. Uh, I'm not going to say that that's unimportant because what we don't want, the worst case scenario, is a bunch of pledges that are both unaccountable and nobody's actually trying to, to achieve or trying to implement. And so there is a role, a very important role for the international negotiations to try and keep those pledges honest. Um, but the, the pursuit of the goals, to me, is more important. Hmm. Earlier, you, you were talking about the importance of shifting the, the, the character of the dialogue in, in climate negotiations. And I was just curious if you think this has any role in shifting societal norms, if there's any play here for negotiations to actually um, shift societal expectations or norms. I do. I think that that's why every all of the whenever we get disappointed by the the climate negotiations, it's a real problem, and that's why I think that the climate negotiations are still very important. Because if you have an aspirational goal and it doesn't seem like a failure every time we meet once a year to to have a climate summit, it changes the sense of what's possible and likely to be happening on climate change. And I think a real, the, I mean, think about just the, the nominal goal of two degrees, keeping warming to two degrees. That has become a touchstone that lots of different areas of society refer to. It's something that people understand. It's something that has become part of the, the lexicon in society. Right? And I, so I think that the international negotiations have a real role at keeping aspiration levels high and keeping that conversation around What's our overall goal here? And I think that that can have the implication or the ramification of changing, if people think it's inevitable, changing what businesses think is inevitable, what's on the horizon, changing how people think, what direction societies are going to be moving in. And I think that that has a big role in shaping what people think is possible, likely, and appropriate to do. Yeah. Great. Well, on that aspirational and goal-oriented note, I think we'll wrap up. But thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking with you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.